God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. And I want to turn your attention to that passage from 2 Timothy. That's on page 9 in your bulletin. While you're turning there, I was uh, thinking about these other readings that are in our bulletin today, and they have that common theme of perseverance in the face of difficulty. Uh, Jacob is afraid of his circumstances and is wrestling with God, and then Jesus tells the story of this this lady who goes to the unjust judge and perseveres for the sake of her cause, and there's this theme in the people of God, there's this theme in Scripture that part of being in the people of God, part of what it means to be um, a man or woman of God is this perseverance, this striving, this wrestling with God. And uh, just felt like I needed to say that. If you're here today struggling, wrestling, coming with fears and difficulties and anxieties, just some encouragement there that this has been the way, it, this is the way it is with the people of God, but we have a God who encounters us and, uh, and encountered Jacob, and, and that made the difference in Jacob's life. And then we see Jesus who's saying, when you cry out to God, persevering in faith, you can trust that God is listening, and he will answer according to his perfect timing. So just thought I would bring that out. But I do have another message to bring with you. And that is uh, from Second Timothy. But this theme of perseverance is, is part of, of what is going on here. As Paul writes to Timothy, he wants him to persevere in the Word of God and to trust in the Word of God and the work of the Word of God. And I want to talk to you this morning about why the Bible is our authority and why we need the Bible in our life and in the church. If you remember last week, if you were here, I talked about Uh, King Josiah's reform movement when he discovered the Word of God and uh, it was brought to him, the law of God, and then he began to reform the kingdom according to the law of God. And we talked about how that brought about great spiritual and social renewal in his day. And so today I want to build on that and reflect on the fact that the Scripture is our source of authority for renewal and why it is the ultimate source of authority, and why it's so useful. And I wonder if there's been times in your life when your confidence in the authority of God's Word has been shaken. You ever go through a season like that? Maybe you have heard some of the criticism of skeptics about the Bible, and it began to shake your faith. Or maybe there's somebody here who's discouraged in their study of Scripture, uh, in their Bible reading. You believe that God's Word is the ultimate authority, but when you read it, you don't get much out of it. You don't sense that God is really speaking to you in His Word. That can undermine your confidence, if not in the authority of Scripture, in the usefulness of Scripture. And So I want to remind us this morning some very basic truths that can help build our confidence in both the authority of the Word of God and the usefulness of the Word of God in our lives and in our church. That's what Paul is doing here with young Timothy. Timothy is a pastor 
Paul is at the end of his life. He knows he's nearing the end of his life. And he's preparing Timothy for leadership for the next generation. And there are people in the church who are teaching false doctrines. They're making inroads. Timothy's confidence, it seems, maybe is shaken here. And so Paul, in these letters, is shoring up the foundations that he wants Timothy to build on as a young pastor and to stand firm in these things. And central to that is the Word of God. He's exhorting Timothy to continue to maintain confidence in the Scripture and to preach and teach the Word of God with patience, with gentleness, with love, but to be faithful in the Word. And so he gives several reasons why young Pastor Timothy should do this, why he should trust the Bible, and why he should continue on in the ministry of preaching and teaching the Word. And I think these reasons apply to us today. And the first reason is, is interesting. Um, it's something I didn't see the first time around as I studied. Got to Tuesday and Wednesday, didn't see this. Happened on Thursday, I think it was, early Thursday morning. I thought, wait a second, I've missed a big point here. And that really has to do with, before Paul dives into some ideas about the Word of God, about the Scripture, he wants Timothy to remember people. Before ideas, he wants Timothy to remember people in his life. People who have been shaped by the Word of God. People who have served for Paul as a Timothy, as a, as a people who have been shaped by the Word of God and have served for Timothy as an example of the power of the gospel and the Word of God. People's lives are a testimony to the power and the authority and the usefulness of the Word of God. And, and that's what Paul is doing here at the beginning of this section, really just going to focus this morning on 14 through 17. But look at what he says in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Why? Look at that phrase. Knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. So Paul says, Timothy, I want you to think about godly people in your life. I want you to think about people who've lived out the truth of Scripture They've walked the walk and not just talked the talk, and you know these people, Timothy. And remember at the beginning of this letter, he points to his mother, Timothy's mother, and grandmother, and their sincere faith. And he says, I remember the sincere faith of your grandmother, and then he names her Lois and your mother Eunice. And now I believe that you have that same sincere faith. So Timothy was a person who was raised in a, in a heritage of faith where these women were in his life, his mother, his grandmother, who trained him up in the scriptures. Presumably, he was also part of a community of faith. Uh, but certainly, we know that the mom and the grandma were of sincere faith. And we see in verse 15 that Timothy's been acquainted with scripture. Sacred writings there would refer to the Old Testament, Timothy's life, from, from childhood. And there are times where in these letters, uh, Paul will point to himself as an example. 
And he'll, he'll say to Timothy, you know my testimony. You know what God has done in my life. So stay faithful to this faith that has made such a difference in my life and the lives of other people that you, that you know. And so in verse 10 of this chapter, actually, chapter 3, he says to Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. My faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Remember how God has shaped my life, Timothy. You've seen it. So don't depart from this. Don't waver from this. And I think that is a great reason to believe in the Scripture. It's not the only reason, but it is certainly a valid reason. Is if you've had people in your life that you can point to and you say, you know what, I see how... The truth of the gospel and the truth of Scripture has changed this person. This is why they are the way they are. And as I look out in the world, I can see that other people are living by other worldviews and philosophies, but, but these people have something different, and I've seen how it has made a difference in the way they live and think. There's something attractive about that, and that's a compelling reason to believe in the authority and usefulness of the gospel. Somebody in this congregation told me about their sister who she was raised in a Christian home and she went off to college and then she started to depart from the faith and that's kind of where she is right now. She's sort of in limbo. She, I think, would describe herself as an agnostic, raised in the church, but encountered skeptical arguments about Christianity, and of course the cultural influences there in college helped to erode her faith. She was hearing arguments about Christianity, like Christians are repressive people, dangerous people, bigots, and hate-filled, and that's an issue that we face today in our culture. We have a PR problem, don't we, as a church? And we can talk about that, why that's happening, and how we might want to respond at another time. But she was hearing arguments like that. The Bible is a repressive book. And so she's talking to her brother about this, and he's continuing the conversation with her. And she said, you know what? The one thing that makes me think twice about buying all of these anti-Christian arguments are the people I know, the Bible-believing Christians that I grew up with. And they're not like this stereotype. My parents are not like this. The people that were in my church... We're not like this. And so that's one thing that has kept her open-minded about faith in Christ. It does make a difference when we see people in our life who've been changed by the gospel and the word of God. I hope you have people in your life that you can point to and say, I see how it's made a difference. And also it challenges us. Doesn't this truth challenge us to love the Bible more? Ask God to give us a greater desire for his word and let it shape us in such a way that we can bear witness to the truth of God's word and the gospel. So that's one reason, to trust in the authority and usefulness of the Bible, the difference it makes in people's lives. But there's another reason, and maybe it's even a stronger reason. I think it is, because guess what? We all fall short of living out the Bible, right? We all fall short of meeting God's perfect standards. That's why we're saved by grace, not by based on what we do. But the, the better reason, the stronger reason to trust the Bible is 
Very simply, verse 16, it is breathed out or inspired by God. Verse 16, all Scripture is breathed out by God. The reason we trust it is that it it comes from God. And it's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Breathed out by God. At the beginning of the Bible, we encounter the breath of God. The breath of God gives life, Genesis teaches us. So Genesis 1, God speaks, and you have to have breath to speak. God speaks his word, and the universe is created. The breath of God gives life. Genesis 2, God forms Adam from the dust, and then he does what? He breathes into the dust, and the man becomes a living creature. God's breath issues from him, comes from him, and gives life when it goes forth. So the scriptures are from God. They issue from God, just as your breath comes from you. Except the scriptures are life-giving because they have the life of God in them, in the sense that they have the power to transform and to give life. Sometimes you'll hear people make caricatures of this idea of the doctrine of inspiration to kind of make it sound ridiculous, or at least incredible. So some people will say, well, this doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, that, that means that God turned the Scripture writers into some sort of robots or automatons, you know, and that they went into maybe a trance. They took up papyrus and started writing in some sort of a trance. Well, that's not what the doctrine of inspiration entails. Not at all. God used the personality of the writer, the history of the writer, the culture, the intelligence, the language, all of that was involved in the process of writing Scripture. We can see that some places in Scripture that kind of give us a sneak peek behind how the Scriptures were written. We don't have a full look at it in the Scriptures, but we do have some places where you can see how the process took place. Certainly there were times where God's Spirit overtook a prophet and they ushered forth or uttered the word of God. God can certainly fill people with the Spirit so that they bring forth his word. But there are other times where we see a more natural process that God was involved in. For example, in the Gospel of Luke, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, he talks about how he investigated eyewitness reports of what happened when it came to Jesus Christ, the stories of the Gospel. He investigated these stories, and then he went about his work as a historian compiling these sources, and guess what? God was at work in that process. God was superintending that process. The words that the gospel writers wrote were God's word in the final analysis. That's what the doctrine of inspiration teaches us. One theologian put it this way, the Bible is the word of God given in the words of men in history. The Bible is the word of God given in the words of men in history. And that's why Scripture is our authority. We believe that these are not only the words of men, but the words of God. And there are some skeptics today that give all sorts of reasons why the Bible is not reliable. And if I was talking to an audience of people who were skeptical, I would maybe engage some of those arguments a little bit more. Let me just give you one thing that might be helpful for you today. And I know some of you uh, know this, but 
there's one kind of common critique that's out there related to the Gospels, and people will say things like, well, the Gospels and the New Testament are only copies of copies of copies of copies of copies. We just have multiple copies. And they'll say things like, um, it's like the telephone game when you were a kid. You know, you're at a party and you play the telephone game, remember that, and by the time you get around the room, the person who started the message, it gets back to them and it's all garbled up. And so people will say, this again is out there in the culture, you can't trust the Bible because you just have copies of copies of copies of copies. Well, there are multiple manuscripts of the New Testament or portions of the New Testament. I think over 5,000 or so manuscripts that we have. But the remarkable thing, and I'm not an expert in this at all, but the experts that I have read have said that the remarkable thing is that there are very slight differences between all these manuscripts. And so you have 5,000 or so manuscripts that as you compare them, you can get a better sense of what the original was saying. But these experts that I've read, one named F.F. Bruce, another Arthur Patsia at Fuller Theological Seminary, both have written about these issues. And they both said this. They said, as we look at the variants within or the variations or the differences between the manuscripts, there is not a single essential doctrine that is questioned. There is not an essential historical matter. That's one of these variations. We have in our New Testament a reliable text. And so even though we can't prove the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture, there are things that we can point to to say God, we believe, superintended the process so that we can trust what is in our Bibles today. We have a strong foundation on which to stand. But you know, one very simple reason why I think a Christian should believe in the inspiration and authority of the Bible is a very clear reason, and that is Jesus Christ believed it. If you're a follower of Christ, you follow Jesus in these matters. I remember a time, a season in my life when I was being pulled and questioning my own faith or uh, sense of the reliability of the Bible because of critical liberal views on the nature of Scripture. And I came across a little book by J.I. Packer, great Anglican, about the Word of God. And in that book, he makes that point. He says, now, if you're a Christian, you believe that Jesus is divine, and if Jesus is divine, then what he teaches you is true, and you follow him in the way that he does his theology, in the way that he does his thinking. And he made the point, he said, you know, when you look at Jesus and how he quoted the Old Testament, when he quoted the Old Testament, it was the final authority. Have you noticed that in Jesus' debates with the religious leaders? The issue was over the interpretation of Scripture. But when Jesus would quote the Old Testament, he would quote it as the final authority. It was the clinching argument. It was the mic drop, we would say today. That's it. End of discussion. You've got the interpretation wrong. Don't you know what the Word of God says? He'll say that in engaging the Pharisees and the scribes. Haven't you heard? <laughs> Haven't you read? He will say. And then he will say things like, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. In other words, don't think that my teaching is canceling out what's written. I've not to come to destroy it. I've come to what? Fulfill it. Fulfill the law. And so, you know, I, I learned that from Packer in one of the great uh, 
highlights of my life as an Anglican was meeting J.I. Packer at an Anglican mission conference when he was a speaker and being able to tell him after he gave a talk, your book saved me from liberalism. And I thank God for your ministry. If we follow Christ, we have to follow his teaching. And Jesus, just like Paul here in 2 Timothy, upholds the inspiration and authority of Scripture. So uh, that's the origin of Scripture. It's from God. And now Paul talks about the uses of Scripture. Because it's from God, it's, it's useful. And here are the ways that it is useful. And I think this is good to kind of go back to periodically. John, Second uh, T- Timothy 3.16, you almost need to put this in the same category as John 3.16. I say, here's another 3.16 you need to know very well as a Christian. It's about Scripture, and it's about what Scripture does in our life. And there are times when I'm reading Scripture, and to be honest with you, it can kind of just float over the surface of my mind and my consciousness. Sometimes I need to bring some intentionality to my reading of Scripture when I'm reading it devotionally, for example. And, and I think what Paul says here, this is for people who say, I'm opening up the Bible and I don't, it doesn't really say much to me. It doesn't speak to me. I think what he says here is very helpful because he says there's four ways that you can, you can look at what God is doing in Scripture and, and you can look for these four things. It is profitable for teaching. Or doctrine. That could be translated doctrine. What do I need to know about God? What is the truth of God? The truth about the world? The truth about humankind? What is this teaching me? This text teaching me? What is the doctrine that's being taught? For reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. Reproof, one scholar said, um, reproof is correcting people who should know better. They're going down a path, and they know it's wrong, and sometimes the scripture needs to come out and confront them to be reproved. uh, Correction has a sense of people who don't know better. They're going down the wrong path, and they don't know the right path, and the scripture can put them on the right path. So as we're reading scripture, what is this teaching me? about God, about the big issues of life? And is there something in the scripture that is correcting, that, needs, that, that, that provides some correction? I'm going down the wrong road of behavior or thinking, and I need to be set on the right course. Is there something in this text that is helping to correct me? Now, how many of us love to be corrected by our spouses or loved ones or friends? Don't you just love it when they point out, oh, you went the wrong way, and oh, what? We, there's something in us that you know, it, it rears up against that. It's our sinful, prideful self, right? But God has graciously given us the scripture. Because like a good parent, like a good father, he wants to correct us so we'll go the right way that's best for us. And so as we're engaging with scripture, it's hard sometimes to hear the correcting word of the Lord, but it is coming from that place of love. How is the scripture correcting me? And then training in righteousness. It's an interesting word that's being used, training in righteousness, is a, it's a Greek word that was common to Greek culture, and the idea, of it's, it has, it, it's really about an educational philosophy, this word that is being translated here. The Greeks had a view of education that was not just about information, but transformation of the self. 
They were trying to create a certain kind of person according to their idea of what the city or the polis should be, trying to create citizens of the polis, of the city, through training them. And it involved not just ideas, but also uh, physical, their conceptions about physical beauty and athleticism and the whole picture. So the idea here is that you're training a person, you're shaping a person to be a kind of citizen. And Paul is relating that to citizenship in the kingdom of God. The scripture can form us into certain kinds of people that are citizens of the kingdom of God. It helps us to grow in maturity, in Christ-likeness. And that is the value. So as we're reading scripture, hearing scripture, how is this shaping me? How should this shape me? We can engage prayerfully in the text, praying those sorts of things. Now, I mentioned earlier, we have this theme of perseverance in our readings. We have to persevere in these things. It takes time to allow God to do this work. It takes time to learn how God can speak to us in his word. There are seasons where we're reading the word of God and we don't sense God's shaping influence or his spirit, but he is working as we listen to the word of God. And I know so many of you can testify to the, the way that the Bible has played that kind of role in your life. You know, God is still doing this work today in our culture, in our time. I know that we hear stories about people falling away from the faith and the nuns, you know, not the, not the N-U-N-S, N-U-N-S's, but the N-O-N-E-S's, you know, the rising generation of people who say, I don't have any faith. We hear these stories, but God is still working powerfully through his word, and we need to listen for those stories. I heard a story just the other day about Barry Zito, who was a baseball pitcher for the Giants. Anybody remember Barry Zito? His dad taught him to throw a curveball, get this, at age seven, which is not a good, healthy thing to do, right? <laughs> but I guess he showed him how to throw the curve, and they worked on that until he got older, and his whole goal in life was to be a major league baseball player and he said that was my idol and so he became a great major league baseball player he became a Cy Young winner and he received the largest contract up to that point for any MLB player any MLB pitcher in history and when he got that contract when he was playing with the Giants he felt an enormous amount of pressure and his performance began to go down and his ego became deflated because, again, his whole life was wrapped up in being this great baseball player. And, in fact, he was taken off the roster in the 20, uh, I think it was the 2010 World Series. Again, the guy with the largest contract on the team in history as a, at, that, at that point was saying, no, you're not good enough to play in the World Series. That was the low point of his life. And he had a girlfriend who was a Bible-believing Christian, and she said, here's what I want you to do, Barry. Don't read anything else. Read this. Get your head screwed on straight and read this. He's in his early 30s, never read the Bible before. And so he began to read it, and he began to go to the Bible studies that the team was hosting. And he said, God began to show me that there was an idol. A concept of idolatry was raised for him as he read the Scripture. And the idol was baseball. My identity was wrapped around doing this job well, and if I didn't do it well, I didn't have much to live for. That's what I thought. 
until I learned about the grace of God in the Bible. And his favorite verse is Ephesians 2, you know, saved by grace through faith. Ephesians 2, 8, not of works, because his whole life was based on work, on performance. And that was the liberating truth of the scripture that saved him, saved him spiritually, saved him psychologically. And he says, even now, I've got on my arm a tattoo of a golden calf to remind me of the idolatry that was in my life, and I want to stay away from it because he discovered a truth that he had not known until he encountered this book, and it changed his life. God is still working through his word. He is still changing the hearts and minds of people. So let's continue to hold fast to these truths, God's God-breathed words. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word and the way that it has influenced this church and influenced our lives. And I pray for people who may be coming this morning from a place of maybe spiritual weariness or, or emptiness or maybe even cynicism or, or doubt. Uh, maybe that's the season that some people are in and they're not sensing you interacting with them or speaking to them. I pray that you'll do a work in their lives by the Spirit as they will persevere in this. And, uh, I pray for all of us that you'll give us a deeper knowledge and love of your word that we could be the kind of people who could be a witness to the transforming truth. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.